Well, welcome to spring or something that looks like spring in Minnesota. To help you get ready for the warm-up, we are here with Tech Hot Dish from the Minnesota High Tech Association. I'm your host, Margaret Anderson Kelleher. Today, we're recording on location in the Minnesota State Capitol. And in this podcast, our eyes and the issues are going to be on public policy. We'll talk about some important updates on what's happening in technology policy at the Minnesota State Capitol during the 2018 legislative session. Cybersecurity is also a hot topic around the Capitol this year and for the state of Minnesota. I'm going to have a question and answer with Patrick Joyce, Vice President of Global Information Technology and CISO of Medtronic, who also serves on the Minnesota High Tech Association Board of Directors. Patrick and I have just sprinted into this conference room from a cybersecurity leadership breakfast hosted by Minnesota Information Technology Services, or MINUTE, where we were on a panel along with Minnesota's Secretary of State, Steve Simon, and the Commissioner of MINUTE, Joanna Clyburn. Steve wasn't able to join us for the podcaster, Joanna, right now. We're hoping to have him on and talk with her a little later in the year for another upcoming episode of Tech Hot Dish. In addition to talking to Patrick about cybersecurity threats and the fact that maybe it won't snow today, um, we will also be talking with our very own John Dukic, Director of Public Policy and Research at the Minnesota High Tech Association. We're gonna go a little further in depth in that conversation on cybersecurity policy and other policy issues affecting the Minnesota tech community issues that we know that you might be interested in connecting with legislators on. We also have the Minnesota High Tech Association events to talk about. We have a few events coming up, a couple highlights, and to talk a little bit about our award-winning internship program, SciTech Experience. I will close the podcast with some really interesting and I think compelling takeaways from our annual Spring Technology Conference, which was held on April 10th. But first, Let's talk cybersecurity with Patrick Joyce. Well, Patrick, welcome to Tech Hot Dish. Thanks for being here with us today. And also thank you for uh, really being a vital part of the breakfast that we just did with Minute, the Minnesota Information Technology Services area. I think we had about 50 people in that room and probably about 10 to 15 legislators. It was really great. No, it was. And thanks, Margaret, for inviting me to participate in this uh, this morning. Uh, it was a great event. And I thought the, the questions were good. The dynamics in the room were good. Um, I mean, it's a conversation. It's, it's getting people to understand that, uh, you know, what we're dealing with here is something that uh, is really affecting everybody. Well, terrific. I think it'd be great if for the listeners of Tech Hot Dish, you could describe your role of as Vice President of Global Information Technology and CISO, um, which is, of course, most of our listeners would know this, but just for those who might not, Chief Information Security Officer at Medtronic. Could you uh, give us a little bit of a picture of what you do? Um, I can. Uh, so, yeah, I've been with Medtronic for about 13 years. I've had a number of different roles in the company. Uh, I've been in my current role for about four years. And what's interesting about our how we approach security at Medtronic is we view it as an integrated function. So um, I actually have responsibility for cyber or IT security. I have responsibility for physical security of our facilities and people and travelers around the world. 
as well as uh, my, my team also manages our program around medical device security, so people trying to hack devices. Um, so it's, it's an integrated role, um, but as my wife likes to say, it's endlessly interesting. <laughs> endlessly interesting. Who can't love to be in work that's endlessly interesting? I, I love that idea. Um, it's something that I love about the work that I do. So I think that what would be um, really interesting to listeners, I'm going to do this uh, two directions. We're going to do two branches. What's your typical week like? Oh, typical. I'm not sure there is a typical. Okay. Um, I, I like the variety, frankly, because much of what I do, you know, you could, you can, the best laid plans, as they say, you can have the best laid plans for what you're going to do. You can set strategy and priority. You can work with different teams around what you're trying to accomplish. But in reality, it kind of depends on what happens in the world. Um, it could be an event in the cyberspace. It could be something that happens in the physical world. It could be something that happens with one of our devices or, or a researcher um, having some activity on one of our devices. It could be a natural disaster. So when things happen in Puerto Rico, we had 4,000 employees and four campuses there. So we're dealing with those issues. So it really um, depends on what's going on in the world. So keeping all the, the programs and important things that we're trying to do and accomplish uh, from a cyber and security standpoint rolling is critical. Um, while you're also keeping track of what's going on in the day-to-day -day world. And I think that that makes me just wonder when you get to sleep, actually, with those global operations and the, the level of, you know, activity, both, both the, the human-made threat in the world, mm -hmm. but also what you said was the natural disaster threat. I mean, that must make for uh, kind of some really wild days and weeks. Well, it does, but you know what's interesting is you know people say, well, it's all about the team, and in reality, it is all about the team. I'm really fortunate that we've got, first of all, our senior leadership at the company are supportive of what we do, and so we have resources to deal with those things. We've built a really strong team, and they've been able to build people into their organizations. We we have we have people in my organization in 11 time zones around the globe, um, and so what you really are dealing with is. You're managing events, you're managing incidents, uh, but you're doing it in a, in a programmatic and, and planful way. Very cool. Um, you know, one of the things that I think, uh, and without, you know, violating any of the things that we don't want to violate about confidentiality in your company, Medtronic is one of the most respected companies in Minnesota. And I think that you probably can can associate this answer with what happens at Medtronic, probably happens at some of the other companies in the state as well. But what has surprised you, um, or what would surprise our listeners about what you've learned about cybersecurity and Medtronic in the last few years? Well, I think what would surprise many people is, and you're seeing it more and more in the news, is You've heard the term medical device probably more in the news uh, in the last couple of years than probably most people have in their entire life, um, trying to define what a medical device is, but the security of medical device. And I think what would surprise people, and it surprised many people in, in our organization over the years, is why would somebody try to tamper with or hack into or manipulate or attempt to manipulate a medical device, whether it's, in a, whether it's something like a pacemaker or or, or a connected bed, and, that, and that's the whole point, is medical device is everything from a pacemaker to a, to a connected right. bed. Um, and I think that surprises people, and it's because you say, well, why would somebody want to do that? Um, lots of motivations for that. 
but regardless of the motivations, we have to make sure that we're designing solutions and technologies from the very earliest stage of their development with security in mind so that they can last the entire life cycle of that product. And I think what you just brought up uh, sparks for me the the we hear a lot in the world about the Internet of Things and connected device, but in some ways you really have been on the forefront of that for a long time. Just by the nature of what Medtronic is doing, this has been something that's really been, I think, part and parcel and probably been worked on for a long time, which is the truly connected world of of medicine and healthcare. And maybe you could take us through like what you've seen in these 13 years of how that's advanced and where where we might be going to, kind of some of those bigger ideas. Well, you know, the term connected care, you're going to hear more if you haven't already. Um, being able to have connected and integrated medical systems, having connected, it's really about the data. It's about providing better care for our patients. But the real key there, and I keep going back to it, it's protecting the value of the information. And for us, the core issue is the safety of our patients, whether it be the device and the care it delivers or the data around that device. And so, yeah, we have been involved in protecting that ecosystem for a very, very long time. Now, the technology changes every day, and we've got devices that were designed many years ago, and but they have to live in today's wild, wild west, right, of, of cybersecurity. And so we're continuously having to upgrade things, continually having to work on things. But for us, the security and safety of our devices, you have to balance how tightly you control those with the efficacy and the importance of the therapy itself, right? So it is absolutely a balancing act, but it's absolutely critical to what we do every day. It's interesting to think about that tension between those two things. And I think it's a, a good transition for us to talk a little bit about what we participated in earlier today. And that's, we were part of a cybersecurity panel hosted by Minute, Minnesota IT Services. And it really was meant to provide um, state government leaders, the policymakers who are putting together legislative bills right now, researchers, we had members of the public there, which I thought was really fascinating. I mean, they had some interest in what we were talking about in both cybersecurity and IT. And so I, I just you know, want to say thanks first to Minute for inviting Patrick and I to be part of the panel. And Aaron Call, who's the state's CISO, Chief Information Security Officer, um, actually moderated the panel for us. What do you think is the most important takeaway for both policymakers and people in state government from what we were talking about today, Patrick? You know, I think it was probably the realization and people had it before they came into the room, but we, I think we both kind of put stomped it and reinforced it. It was that similar to the private sector, government um, and, and, and public sector institutions, cybersecurity is not a one and done. It's not going to go away. There is no easy button. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get more complex. Um, and it requires that continual investment because the bar keeps moving, right? And so, you know, we have those discussions in, in private enterprise about investments and what needs to be done. There's always limits to resources, so you have to make the right choices. That's true in state government. But if there's the expectation that cybersecurity is like building a building where once you build it and then all you have to do is maintain it, it's not the same thing. You have to continually invest. You have to continually update. You have to test. You have to probe. You have to do all of those things. Um, and, and there is no end game um, because the rules keep changing on the field. Right. 
I actually think legislators, legislators would find your observation right there very analogous to things that they face all the time and particularly in the world of building new buildings. So one of the things I remember from my days here at the Capitol, I got to serve on the Capital Investment Committee, which was a fun committee to serve on. You were, you were looking at repairing and building new things, but we often had a, a little phrase in that committee, and that was the cheapest thing you can do is actually build the building. The most expensive thing is maintaining that building over time, especially in the public sector where the maintenance, uh, you know, we, we have expectations about these facilities lasting for 25, 30, 50 years. And I think that that's a good segue to talk about how people need to think about information technology nowadays. Um, you know, for a long time, information technology was the thing off to the side. It wasn't necessarily integrated in the business operation. Now what we see is that it's critical it to is, the. It is the business. It is, and right. even at the state of Minnesota, I think, right. you know, you look at more and more the demand for online services or convenience of being able to do a number of things. The amount of data the state of Minnesota has. Let's talk a little bit about keeping that safe. And you mentioned uh, security spend. I th I think we probably could do a two-hour podcast on this whole thing when I think about it, but we can't today. So let's talk about investment and and that keeping the eye on the prize of keeping things like data safe, um, uh, batting back those hacktivists who are out there who want to embarrass uh, maybe a particular leader or government leader or something. These are all things that that the state of Minnesota is facing right now. Well, and it's it's not unique to the state of Minnesota or the public. Or it, it's it's common in across every organization. And you know, I like to talk about this topic not in the terms of the bits and the bytes, or the ones and the zeros, or the routers and the network segments, that sort of thing. Those are all critical. You have to have those things. You have to keep them updated and patched and good cyber hygiene, as we call it. But it really goes back to the value of the data. And if you don't understand what your sensitive data are, your crown jewels, as people like to say, if you don't understand what it is, if you don't understand where it is, if you don't understand who wants it, and therefore how you need to protect it, you can't take that peanut butter approach of you know running the peanut butter across the bread and having it all be even. You, nobody has the funds to secure everything at the same level, nor should you. So if you understand and you classify your data, you know what it is, you know where it is, then you can build your strategies around protecting it. And so the state has the same challenge. There's, there's lots of data, lots of really valuable data in the state, just as there is in every other enterprise, just like you have at home. You know where your, your valuables are at your house, and you know which valuables you decide you're going to put in the safety deposit box versus what you keep at the house. And state government, as well as industry and businesses, have to do the same thing. We have embarked on a program a few years ago um, called our High Value Data Protection Program, which really was about inventorying where our most sensitive data is in the company, how it's protected, what controls are in place, and how we, how we manage that. Um, that is something the state uh, probably could or should or maybe is looking at to say, what is our most sensitive data and how do we apply the correct controls and mitigations so that we're protecting that. So it isn't just about routers and switches and servers and software. It's about where do you apply those things so that you protect the data in the right way. I think that um, when you're talking about that, I, I really, you know, and, and I'm sure listening to Commissioner Clyborne today, 
that the state probably has embarked on some sort of project like the high value data project that you just talked about at Medtronic. Um, it makes me think about her, she gave us sort of an idea of investment spend. So I think we have to think about this as critical uh, investment spend to protect the, the digital infrastructure of what's out there. And she talked about that the state of Minnesota right now has invested about 2% in cybersecurity and the surrounding issues of cyber. And 2% of their IT budget. 2% of their IT budget. And can you give us a sense of where industry is at? And I know there, there are some differences based on types of industry as well. Yeah, so I have done some benchmarking with other peers, other organizations, and I think we talked about it in the last session. Uh, if, if you're in an organization that's say financial services or banking, uh, where or highly regulated industries like that, um, they've been paying attention to this sort of thing for a long time. Uh, we want them to. We all want them to protect our data in our in our financial uh, environments. So what I see oftentimes there is anywhere from seven to eight to even upwards of ten percent of of the of the IT spend is on is on cyber. Um, I've seen other organizations that uh, maybe don't have that level of sensitive information, but they still have sensitive business plans and marketing plans. And you know they might be they may be further down as far as two or three percent. Mm -hmm. um, I think you know the, the range is somewhere in that in that space. I know in talking to other organizations in my sector of healthcare uh, on the healthcare delivery side, it's probably closer to that two percent. If you get into the medical device and technology, it's it, it's obviously a little bit higher than that. Mm -hmm. So it it all depends on the organization, its maturity, its objectives, and maybe where it is on this journey of maturity from a cybersecurity standpoint. Excellent. So I think that we're probably going to run out of time here soon, but I'd love um, for you to maybe do a couple both ops, big observations about what we were talking about and hearing today, uh, you know, in terms of the threats that the state of Minnesota, local governments, as well as businesses face out there, and maybe uh, rounding that off with a couple tips for people of things that you know, just good good cybersecurity hygiene that people need to be paying attention to. Well, I think at a, at a personal level, we all have to take a look at it. So it's, it's not just at a business, but at a personal, we all have computers, we have mobile devices, um, how we secure our own information. I mean, you, you even asked the question in the last session, when was the last time you changed your password? And there was, a, there was a lot of laughter in the room because it was nervous laughter because people hadn't changed their passwords or they're using the same one for 20 different accounts. Um, you know, that's critical. So the basics like that, making sure your systems stay patched and updated. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the, the latest and greatest technology, but take what you have and make sure it's the most current. Um, that's something that very few people do in their personal lives. You know, at a business level, it applies there as well. You can't possibly expect to keep your systems um, updated or uh, safe if, if you're not keeping them patched, as we talked about in the last session. I think the other thing is probably even a little bit deeper. It's Social media and mobile devices, everything is so prevalent in our lives today. Um, and we we'll often talk about how organizations get hacked or how people get hacked or how they get fished is, and maybe their credentials are compromised or their IDs are compromised because somebody has data about them that they're able to steal their identity. Well, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how much data are we putting out there about ourselves in the public domain that allows somebody else to be able to steal, in effect, our identity or other information. So it is about organizations like mine and others 
protecting the data that we are stewards for. We take that very, very seriously. I think those of us as individuals, though, we have to take some personal responsibility for what kind of information are we putting out there? How are we sharing it? Um, as we've seen in the most recent issue with Facebook, and how, how might that data be used? Absolutely, and I think it's a really good point. I think the, the point was made in the panel that it's not all that difficult to figure out, and I think you made this point often, people's high school mascot. Uh, one of the ways to authenticate your identity, even in two-factor processes, because often one of the questions is, what was your high school mascot? And, you know, it's not all that difficult to go out there and figure that out. If we we often tell people to, uh, um, the answer you give doesn't have to be the truth. Right. And I think this is <laughs> you what... You can make up a new mascot. This is one where, you know, longer, more complex, more interesting right. is really important and, you know, really being able to think about it. Where, how do you, what would you advise people in terms of keeping up to date on issues of cybersecurity, generally information technology that you pay attention to on either a daily or weekly basis? That could be a blog you read or some industry uh, information that you're keeping up to date on, but I think that's always interesting to people. It might be for us. I think the average person, they might roll their eyes or get some good, good sleep out of it. Nothing more fun than reading a bunch of cyber tech stuff. Um, I, I have um, a half a dozen different sites that I go to. You know, people know Brian Krebs, obviously. His stuff is very, very interesting. Um, usually is, is, is uh, somewhat earth-shattering in what he reveals. Um, there are, if you just literally go out and Google or whatever your favorite engine is, um, cybersecurity blog or cybersecurity information, there are, there are many different publications um, if, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, just having your antenna tuned for that. Now, what you see in the media oftentimes is, as we've, as we've discussed previously, not always the full story, and it might be, a, might be a little bit high height, but if you go down, as you suggest, to that next level and try to understand what's going on, um, you'll, get, you'll get a better story. And maybe what we could do is get a couple of your recommendations and put them in the show notes. I think that's always interesting to people. So, Patrick, thank you so much for spending time with us today on Tech Hot Dish. It's been a lot of fun. And it also is, I, you're one of my, you're just one of my favorite people to talk with. You have such a great background. Being a veteran of the Air Force, uh, it's really, I think your background is so interesting. And I am delighted that you are part of the Minnesota High Tech Association and that everyone at Medtronic is. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for the time today. Welcome back to Tech Hot Dish. Today we've been talking with Patrick Joyce, Vice President of Global Information Technology and Chief Information Security Officer for Medtronic. It was a great discussion about cybersecurity both in the, the public sector and the private sector. Medtronic is a member of the Minnesota High Tech Association and really spans that breadth between healthcare, life sciences, and information technology. That's where so much is happening in our world today. Our next guest is John Dukic. He's our very own Director of Public Policy and Research at the Minnesota High Tech Association. And, you know, John, I think that you are getting a regular reputation of being here on Tech Hot Dish. Welcome back. Thank you, Margaret. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about what is happening at the Capitol and following up on my conversation with Pat Joyce and the cybersecurity breakfast that Minute was the host of today at the state Capitol to go maybe a little more in depth on these issues of how they're affecting state policy and what policymakers uh, are facing this year. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the, what have, what's been on the top of the minds of legislators in the 2018 session on these topics. Well, I think you touched on the, the primary uh, topic is cybersecurity for a number of reasons. Um, as many people know, with the election in, in 2016, um, the hacking uh, issues that came up during that election have really focused attention at the state level on how to protect our state election system. And there are a couple of bills that would fund, uh, provide money to the Secretary of State to help do that and provide funding for um, cybersecurity of our election system. That's really important. Um, but so are some other proposals that would seek to really reform how the state uh, practices and, and uh, structures its IT systems. There are a number of bills that um, seek to reform MINUT and or uh, direct specific funding dollars or amounts um, to MINUT for cybersecurity. A number of proposals such as uh, requiring MINUT to look outside of state government for um, contracting its IT uh, services. This is something the state is already doing, but um, it's probably going to be doing more going forward. So those are some, some proposals that don't directly affect our, our members, but do affect the way that the state tackles cybersecurity and IT uh, generally. Um, a couple of other items that I'd like to talk about are the Angel Investment Tax Credit and uh, Data Center. So let's go back to cybersecurity for a second. Can you give us an idea? Um, in the room today, we probably had about 10 to 15 legislators who were in and out of the room of the cybersecurity breakfast. And I think that was a great sign because uh, we have a few folks who know a little bit in depth about this topic. People like Representative Nash knows a lot. Um, Senator Paul Anderson has been very interested in this issue as well as Senator Melissa Wickland has been interested in this issue. But tell me what you observed about legislators' interest today and maybe a couple of the ways that legislators understand the issues around cybersecurity and information technology. Well, I will say um, that in addition to the legislators you mentioned, Margaret, there are some others that uh, typically haven't been as involved in cybersecurity. And so it's really great to see more legislators paying attention to this really important issue. And they're paying attention to it for a number of reasons. Um, one is that it, as we mentioned earlier, it directly impacts the state and our election system, but it's also a really important workforce issue. And we heard that from Representative uh, Jessup, um, who asked about workforce and cybersecurity. Um, but we're, we're also seeing it from others. Uh, former Secretary of State Senator Kiffmeyer was in the room. Um, along with other uh, state legislators. And so it's really exciting to see more legislators paying attention to this really important issue. And, you know, we'll have a recap of the session when the session ends, but I do think it was really a fantastic show of interest in, in an area that, frankly, can be a little either it's 
out there in the news headlines like election hacking attempts. Secretary of State Steve Simon was part of the panel today, and uh, Secretary of State Simon was really fantastic about talking about how Minnesota was one of the 21 targeted states for Russian election interference. We were not compromised in the state of Minnesota, but I think he made a very good point that you're only as good as the systems in place. And so his focus on updating the, the past systems that have been built that have served us well was really important. And, you know, I think overall it, it was, to me, a little heartening to see so many people show up, but probably over 50 people show up to hear and to interact around the topic of cybersecurity today. So let's talk a little bit about the data center tax issues that are going on and the angel investment tax issues going on, since they're both in the tax category. Sure, let's start with the uh, data center tax exemption. Uh, this is something that was put in place in, in 2011, um, updated again in 2013, and has been extremely successful um, in terms of attracting data centers to Minnesota or you know, having companies refurbish existing data centers. And I think sometimes the success can uh, be its own worst enemy. Um, and I think we're seeing that in some of the proposals coming forward at the, at the state capitol. Um, the Department of Revenue and the governor's office have you know, different proposals, but each of which seek to claw back some of the, um, the exemption on computer software. And this is a, a big deal for a lot of our members that own or operate a data center. Software, as many of you know, is, is a, a big component to, to running a data center. Um, whether or not it's for the operations of a data center or software downloaded via data center and pushed out to um, off the premises. And these, these are the types of software categories that the department and the governor's office are seeking to uh, claw back a little bit. So I bet a lot of your time has been spent, John, about educating both legislators and folks in the administration about what a big deal this is to our, our sectors especially in information technology, but broader than that because so many Minnesota companies actually have either built their own data center, refurbished a data center, or they hotel in a data center that has been built with these exemptions. And so I think it's really probably one of the main things you've been working on doing education around this year. That's right. I mean, just just because you're, you're not in technology per se doesn't mean you don't own or operate or need or rely on a data center. Uh, data centers are important for healthcare, insurance, financial technology, retail, and other areas. And so this is a broad sweeping piece of legislation that has the potential to impact not just Minnesota's tech community, but more than that. Um, and it's been really great to work with a, a, a group of industry leaders on this issue. So working with the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce and the Minnesota Business Partnership and their membership as well on um, helping educate legislators on this issue. So right now I can imagine there are people listening to the podcast who are like, whoa, we didn't know about this. So I'm just going to tell you right now how you get in touch with John. Um, John can be reached at his email, which is? J 
Yukich, that's B-U-K-I-C-H, at M-H-T-A dot org. All right. And um, let's talk angel investment tax credit briefly to give a quick update. I think we have talked about that issue before a little bit, but give us an update on that one. Sure. Just just to recap, uh, as many of you might know, the, the tax credit expired at the end of 2017, um, but we are seeing some positive movement this legislative session. Um, the governor has included $10 million in his budget for the angel investment tax credit. The Senate has included uh, $5 million a year in the removal of the sunset um, for the angel investment tax credit in their tax bill. And we're still uh, waiting to see what the House has proposed, which uh, should be next week or so. Um, and so this is really great news. Um, we'd like to see more funding for the angel investment tax credit, but some funding is better than no funding at this point. And I want to say that I think it's it, it's important to think about the legislative session almost a little like a baseball game. So it starts, there are a number of different innings in the baseball game. And I, I think if I were going to categorize where we're at, maybe I'm being a little too optimistic right now, we're at the top of the seventh. And uh, this is really the important part of this game right now where at the legislature, a lot of decisions are being made in the next couple of weeks. The governor put a budget out a few weeks ago, and John's talked about some of those items. But what we're talking about now is that the legislature is putting together really their counter offer to that budget, their own budget, and they're putting that forward. And then that gets negotiated really in about the eighth inning and the ninth inning of the game. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to keep in mind. Let's talk broadband for a quick second. We've talked about broadband a little bit on the podcast before. Um, I chair the governor's broadband task force. I've been doing that for seven years. It's an issue near and dear to the Minnesota High Tech Association's heart because it's about connecting all Minnesotans to high-speed broadband. We just had a broadband day on the Capitol that we participated in. We didn't organize it, but a coalition, a broadband coalition organized it. It was a lot of fun to go speak with them. They had about another 40 to 50 advocates here who were from all across the state of Minnesota really talking about, telling their story about the need for high-speed broadband. How's broadband going here, John? Well, broadband is doing what broadband does about this time of session. Uh, the governor has proposed $30 million in funding for the state border-to-border -border broadband grant program. Um, the Senate has put forward a proposal of $15 million, and we are awaiting a proposal from the House, um, which we will likely see this afternoon. Um, and so those are positive movements, I think, in helping fund the state's grant program. Um, but, Margaret, you, testified last week uh, at the the House uh, Jobs Committee. So let me ask you, and, and participated on the, the broadband day on the Hill. So let's turn this around a little bit and ask you about your experience uh, last week. Uh-oh, John's starting to interview me now. Um, it, it was really fun. I mean, the, the broadband day on the Hill was great because, you know, I, Let's just think about it. You know, broadband is kind of an issue that doesn't necessarily have a voice per se. It's not as, you know, it's not, it doesn't have the voice of K-12 education or it doesn't have the advocates that maybe a health issue has. But this really gave the voice to broadband by having these advocates come in 
to the Capitol and tell about why broadband was important to their own personal story or their, their community's story. So that's, to me, that's one of the great things that can happen here at our Capitol. We're pretty open about people coming over and doing that. The hearing was like a speed hearing though, because it was a special time. It was actually scheduled for the broadband day on the hill and the chair was very accommodating to us to allow me to kick off the hearing with an overview of our 2017 broadband report. You can find all of these things at mhta.org under the public policy section. But it was, it was like a, a speed uh, a conversation because we were really pressed for time and we wanted to make sure those advocates got up and told their stories because in some ways um, they are the most important part of the broadband story. That's right. They, and you know, those, those advocates rely on or uh, you know, look to the state's grant program for help in connecting their, their communities. Um, can you tell us how many communities, how many households and businesses have been connected through the grant program thus far? Through this public-private partnership with the state of Minnesota through the Border to Border Broadband Program. Almost 40,000 households have now been connected to high-speed broadband. Over 5,000 businesses have been connected to high-speed broadband. And over 300 what we call anchor institutions. So that could be a school or a hospital has been connected. The, the hard part of this one is that we still have 250,000 plus, almost two, it's a little under 255,000 households that aren't connected. And these are some of the most rural, most remote sites in Minnesota. And so that's kind of what we are focused on right now is the connection. I think a lot of people take for granted that they have a fairly good connection especially if you live in the metropolitan area, you have a pretty good connection usually. In some places, they are still on dial-up or worse. They just aren't connected at all. And that's, that's what we're working towards is getting everyone connected. John, would you give your contact information again and the best way to connect with you? I, I, there's probably people listening who want to become a member of MHTA as well, and they could at least reach out to you. Uh, Ray Hoover actually handles that at at MHC as well as being the uh, producer of the podcast, but could you just, uh, for, the, for the listeners, say your email again? Sure. Uh, my email again is jdukic at mhta.org, and that's j-e-u-k-i-c-h at mhta.org. And folks, that'll be in the show notes as well. John, thanks for joining us. Uh, try to, you know, try to get some rest. At least get good nutrition while you're in in the, you know. There's always a, a hot dog and some popcorn available here at the Capitol for the seventh inning stretch. <laughs> Thank you, Margaret. Now joining us to talk a little bit about news and events at Minnesota High Tech Association is MHTA's Director of Communications and Marketing, Mo Schreiner. Take it away, Mo. Thanks, Margaret. First, some important news. This month, the SciTech Experience Program at Minnesota High Tech marked an important milestone. The program has now placed over 1,000 interns with Minnesota small businesses to work in science, technology, engineering, and math positions. 
Since 2012, the state of Minnesota has provided funding for site experience to recruit, to place, and to provide wage subsidies for STEM interns. And interns come from all colleges around Minnesota and are placed with companies all around Minnesota that have up to 250 employees. Um, SciTech is one of the programs at Minnesota High Tech that support our mission for STEM workforce development. So congratulations to SciTech Experience. And a special shout out to Becky Siekmeyer. She's been director of the program since it started in 2012. If you are a small business or know of a small business that is looking for or would benefit from having a STEM intern, you can contact Becky. Her contact info and more about the SciTech program can be found on our website, mhga.org. Many interns are being placed yet this summer. I also want to tell you about some upcoming events for Minnesota High Tech. On May 8, Women Leading in Technology will host a panel on the power of resilience. The panel includes women leaders from Travelers Companies, Bremer Bank, Wells Fargo, and Robin Kaplan's law firm. They will lead a discussion on how resilience helps them in their professional and personal lives. On September 13, the Minnesota High Tech Foundation hosts our annual benefit bids and bites to raise money for STEM workforce development. And that includes scholarships for college students studying STEM. And then we have the Techni Awards, where Minnesota High Tech shines a spotlight on the best and brightest in the state's technology community. That will be November 29. Now, an important date coming up before that last Thursday in November for the Techni Awards is Monday, June 11. It's on June 11 that applications will open for Techni Awards. So lots of good things happening at Minnesota High Tech. Margaret, I'll hand it back to you. Thanks, Mo. In addition to all the events that are upcoming, I want to take some time to reflect on our big event that we held last week on April 10th, our annual Spring Technology Conference. We were happy that we had at least moderately good weather for the day. All the people who joined us, I want to say thank you. Thanks to our conference sponsors, exhibitors, presenters, attendees, almost 500 people participated. I want to highlight for you a couple of really things that I took away from the conference. We had dozens of people at the conference who took their very first ride in a self-driving car thanks to VSI Labs. VSI is based in St. Louis Park and there was a lineup, um, people actually trading, trading spots to be able to get into those vehicles. We even brought Representative Congressman Tom Emmer out to see the car. He couldn't take a ride in it, but he's going to go out and visit VSI. It was really, I think, one of the things that was interesting, intriguing, exciting about the day was VSI Labs and their self-driving cars. Another takeaway from the conference were examples of innovative technology for real-world applications. At a workshop on blockchain, which was packed with people, Bitwise IO CEO James Mitchell gave an example of how blockchain technology can be used for a restaurant owner to follow the trail and the custody of the fish from the ocean to the boat to the shipping to the restaurant table all to know that that fish was responsibly sourced and kept at the right temperature so it's safe. Digital transformation was another very popular theme at our conference this year. 
We had big crowds for Target's presentation on Target Dojo and the transformation process Target's using with immersive learning and coaches to digitally transform. Best Buy and Cargill also told their stories of digital transformation. And the conference closed with a keynote from Microsoft. Our keynote from Microsoft, Stacy, really spoke to that. How do you digitally transform in a global giant like Microsoft and be able to incorporate, incorporate a new, actually a little bit like new DNA being, being inserted into the company? A key takeaway of these discussions was that people are the key element of transformation. We know that people are at the heart of digital transformation. We also know that people are at the heart of the Minnesota High Tech Association. We welcome you to join us as a member of MHTA. You can go to mhta.org and learn more. Thanks for listening to Tech Hot Dish from the Minnesota High Tech Association. If you have an idea for a podcast or you'd like to become a member or a sponsor or get more information, visit the website at mhta.org. I'm Margaret Anderson Kelleher, and we'll be back for more helpings of Tech Hot Dish soon.